Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelop the world today as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. Today's episode, we dive deep into one of my personally favorite topics, uh, climate, and specifically climate tech and climate finance, what India should be thinking about as we develop our own climate transition strategy to meet not just the goals and the targets we've committed internationally, but also to make use of climate technology as, as a way for India to leapfrog in its own development journey. Joining me today is Bharat Pandey, uh, a fellow Harvard Kennedy School graduate and someone I've known for several years now. Bharat, as some of you might already know, was earlier a partner at Umedyar Network India and is now a partner at BCG and seen the issue of climate from various vantage points, from within government, from the private sector, and also now from a consulting standpoint. And so today I'm excited to have Varad join us on this episode of Interpreting India. Varad, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, Anirudh. It's delightful to be here with you again. Thanks again uh, for taking the time, Varad. Uh, today I look forward to talking to you about uh, climate finance, climate technology, lessons in the climate journey from other countries that India could learn from, and of course, many other things. But to get started, I believe you just went diving. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that experience was? Yeah, thank you. So I, you know, I took on this uh, uh, with the objective of uh, trying to pick up a real skill, which I haven't done for a long time. I thought I'll challenge myself and go become an open water diver. So I was in the Andamans for about a week. Uh, had a delightful time seeing the undersea life. And to be honest, Anirudh, part of the motivation was also that, you know, somebody who speaks about advocates for climate action, not knowing what more than half of planet Earth really consists of was some sort of a big gap. And so getting a tiny glimpse of it, your own eyes, was actually uh, quite rewarding. And I must say in, in our own very own Andaman and Nicobar Islands, we have done a fantastic job. Uh, you know, they have they don't allow commercial fishing, which is the reason that there are uh, both plentiful marine life and large size marine life, which was validated to me by experienced divers who were there. And so that was that was great to see. We'll, do, we'll delve into problems, but we must also celebrate, uh, you know, islands of excellence that we have. And Andamans definitely uh, counts counts for that. I think uh, not for, not a topic for today, but, you know, uh, role of oceans in climate change, I feel, is a topic that has been severely under uh, studied and underemphasized. It has a massive role in both mitigation and adaptation. It's a wonderful carbon sink absorbing 90% of the excess heat caused by carbon uh, by climate change and a fourth of CO2 emissions. Its absorptive capacity is actually far better than uh, forests. In terms of adaptation, you know, mangroves not only support uh, fisheries and biodiversity, but also strengthen the ability of our coasts and our coastal communities withstand the impacts of climate change as natural walls. And of course, it's a massive economy, uh, the ocean's economy. In this morning, I was seeing something which was a story in the NPR, the National Public Radio of the US, 
on a story of these elderly women divers in Tamil Nadu in India who are in their 50s and 60s who do this free diving to collect seaweed uh, from the bottom of the ocean if you have show notes i'll share the link to that story with you uh, but just to say they are uh, you know oceans while so important are also under deep danger and threat uh, this this is called the trifecta of crisis of ocean acidification of increasing sea temperatures and increasing sea level rise uh, and so i think um, both the opportunity and the threat to the oceans is immense there has been a recent win which was that in march this year the countries of the world signed a new treaty uh, to protect the the uh, the open seas the high seas called the biodiversity beyond natural jurisdictions treaty it's almost like the paris accord to protect the high seas by creating marine protected areas protecting marine genetic resources as a as an intellectual property for the whole world and uh, you know mandating environmental impact assessments for uh, large projects in the open seas so there is hope but a lot more needs to be done and i'm glad i could start uh, understanding that ecosystem a little bit thanks to my diving i see that you didn't take diving only as a pure holiday <laughs> clearly you've linked it back to work uh, but uh, you know i i have to mention on this that uh, two things one you know one of our colleagues at carnegie darshana barua uh, has been doing great work she directs the indian ocean initiative at carnegie south asia program in washington and uh, the piece that you mentioned about the islands right uh, i think is a very important one uh, in which darshana convenes uh, the annual indo pacific islands dialogue also which brings together the islands of the indian ocean and the pacific to discuss the issues that are important to small island nations from a climate standpoint as well so it's a topic that i think is close to close to uh, our heart at carnegie as well uh, as you also rightly pointed out it's something that maybe doesn't get as much attention as uh, some of the bigger topics around um, you know climate finance or, or or new climate tech innovations like green hydrogen etc do but is is an important one from a resilience and adaptation standpoint for sure and the second thing i'll mention right is from a personal standpoint so i spend as much time i think in delhi as i do outside of delhi and um, you know usually either vacation or work would take me up either to the mountains or to the beach and the oceans and i absolutely agree with you about the point that you made about the life that exists on more than 50% of the earth that sometimes we don't think enough about because we happen to be sitting on land most of the time but really i think the way the mountains you know in the indian case the himalayas but also the other mountain ranges of the of the, of the, of the south asian subcontinent Uh, as well as the oceans right uh, play in preserving our biodiversity preserving our overall climate ecosystem is something that we've got to take into account much more than we do because uh, just land is not uh, you know uh, the 100% of the problem or the solution right i think as you rightly started to point out ocean the ocean will also provide actually a lot of solutions that we might not fa- find on land Right, so I think uh, your points are well taken. Um, and I'll just, I'll just add that uh, I think, you know, it's a very interesting thing. I think a lot of the climate change discussion is a focused on land, as you said, right? So oceans don't get the emphasis. The second aspect, it's also focused a lot on, um, you know, mitigation and how do you reduce emissions and get to net zero or decarbonization. If you do a word cloud of 
what is the climate change discussion? You will get mitigation, decarbonization, net zero as popping up as the big, big words. And you'll get much less on adaptation, resilience, biodiversity, oceans, etc. And I think it's very important to make nature, more broadly speaking, a much more central part of the climate change conversation. Otherwise, it can feel a little bit academic and uh, technical and technological. Whereas, as people have argued, your best and the biggest ally in the fight against climate change is na nature. So I, lo I love the mantra that we have to go from net zero to nature positive as our calling cry for humanity. No, absolutely. I think nature is, uh, I think what we are trying to protect and preserve. And I think we do need nature as a, as an ally there. And I think nature-based solutions are something that I'm seeing now. Startups also try and adopt as a, as, as a strategy or as a solution to scale up, right? Uh, whether it's, um, you know, regenerative forests, whether it's, as you were saying, you know, kelp and, uh, various other pieces I think that nature can offer to us um, that uh, hopefully then startups and entrepreneurs and governments uh, and investors can take forward and try and scale up to a level that they can counter the the, the human-driven uh, adverse effects we've had on nature to begin with, right? So, so completely agreed on the nature-based solutions and the importance they have, especially in the adaptation and resilience piece. And I think especially important for a country like India, given where we are in our own socioeconomic uh, development journey and the mix that we have in our own population in India, right? I think mitigation uh, will not just be enough. We've got to have the adaptation and resilience part of the strategy, right, as well. And of course, one of the main constraints, Vara, that uh, for India that exists in its uh, climate transition journey is finance, right? Um, and we'll try and break this conversation into finance and tech separately. Though obviously they are very much interlinked. Uh, without one, the other doesn't really exist, as I've tried to argue even in my book. Uh, they are really the climate and the tech and capital as the two factors of production today are like the main duopoly of our world. But uh, we'll try, still try and keep climate finance as the first focus of our conversation, then we'll try and move to climate tech. But on climate finance, right? the traditional argument and the thinking in India has been that we have not been responsible historically for the majority of the emissions, the industrialized world, the West has been responsible for the cumulative emissions over the last century and a half. And hence the responsibility to fix this problem lies squarely on the shoulders of those who've created the problem, who've caused the problem or the bulk of the problem. And hence they should actually through opening up the, their pockets through finance, finance the climate transitions of the developing world that has not been responsible for the bulk of the emissions. This strategy, I think, as many of us know, though this negotiation strategy, rather, has not worked fully, right? In, in, in the sense that the results have not necessarily been there to uh, justify that strategy or its success, right? The West has said a lot of things, about, you know, $100 billion commitments and here and there, they've discussed how to uh, aggregate that those funds as well. But I think as you have also seen, those funds have not necessarily met, the, the reality has not met the, the talk sometimes and the talk sometimes has not met the expectations of the, of the South, so to say. As a result of which, that problem becomes a, a hard problem to solve. 
right? So I first wanted to ask you, how do you see that problem working itself out over time? Or are we going to remain in that kind of limbo that has often plagued negotiations at COP and other forums? Are we destined to be stuck in that limbo or is there a way out? Yeah, great question, Anirudh. And let me start by first, um, you know, just at, at a more, and I'll come to your points on the global north versus global south in a bit. But why is this such a tricky problem, climate finance, right? And really at the heart of this is the fact that climate change is everyone's problem, but no one person's problem, right? So we are all stuck in this together. Uh, we are all, uh, it's a commons problem. And so who should pay for it? Should I pay for it? Should I not pay for it? Is a matter of great debate and uh, uh, disagreement. And it's been since the climate negotiations started 20, 30, 30 years ago, right? And I have a lot of empathy for the argument of the developing countries that, hey, we didn't cause the problem. So don't ask us to show up and pay for it. Uh, in fact, the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley, who's become a folk hero these days for the voice of the developing countries, has said, you know, you developed countries are putting us in a double jeopardy. First, they colonized us, uh, plundered us, uh, and essentially the industrial revolution was built on the back of colonialism. And now you're asking us to pay for it by, uh, by um, asking us to pay the cost of the cleanup, essentially. So it's a double jeopardy, as she puts it, right? And I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, sort of framing. And so I think... Um, the developing countries have rightfully over the years demanded that, um, of course, we need to solve this problem, but it requires large transfers of finance and technology from the global north to the global south. Now, there has been some progress in this, but uh, some is the operative word, right? You, you mentioned the, the uh, number which is often touted in climate negotiations that $100 billion should flow every year from the developed world to the developing world for this problem. This was first discussed in 2009 in the Copenhagen uh, climate talks when I was a part of this whole thing. And uh, we still haven't reached 100 billion, right? And 100 billion, Anirudh, is a drop in the ocean, as you have also argued in your paper. What we need is actually trillions of dollars. Janet Yellen has put it really well when she says, you know, uh, the funding needs are in trillions and we have so far been talking about billions. So we are an order of magnitude away all the estimates I've seen tell us we need three to five trillion dollars a year from now every year until 2050. And currently we are investing about 600 billion dollars. So we are at investing 20% of what we need. So imagine three to five trillion. We are saying 100 billion from the, the developed world should give developing countries. And even that's not happened, right? So that's the reality of the situation. And of course, we have uh, developing countries have very strong arguments around climate justice, around the fact that our per capita emissions are very low. The fact that uh, climate change is determined by the stock of carbon, the stock of GHG gases, and not the flow, not this year. So it doesn't, saying that India is today the third or the fourth largest emitter uh, in 2022 is meaningless because what uh, really is the cumulative emissions that developed countries have done since 1850 or thereabouts in industrial revolution started is what is determining how much of the carbon space is remaining if we are to stick to the 1.5 degree or 2 degree uh, Celsius uh, thing. So I think um, we need to continue. We need to continue uh, to put uh, put pressure on the global north for, for finances. But, and this is an important but, 
we cannot only rely on that as our strategy. And I think this has been the big change in our approach to climate negotiations over the last decade, uh, is that we have realized that we will negotiate hard on the global table, but we will act and we will act for our own sake uh, for two reasons. One, because, you know, the kind of issues you were mentioning earlier, Anirudh, we are uniquely vulnerable in as a country. We have multiple points of great vulnerability to climate change. We have the Himalayan glaciers, which are melting at an alarming pace. 400 million Indians live on the uh, downstream of the Himalayan glaciers who depend on their livelihood on the Himalayan rivers. We have, our, we have the sea level rise and the sea uh, temperature increase, which we started this discussion with. We have 200 million people living near the coast in India, right? We have the monsoons patterns and there's enough scientific evidence now to show that the monsoon patterns are getting drastically affected by climate change. We are still largely a rain-fed country, highly dependent on monsoons for our food security. And we have this additional problem of having to grow our energy supply dramatically over the next 30 years as we become uh, a wealthier and uh, a fast-growing fast growing economy. So we have these unique vulnerabilities because of which we cannot only rely on the West or the developed world to come to our rescue. The second reason I don't think we should not uh, rely is because this is also a massive opportunity for us, right? Um, we are often, uh, you know, India is often uh, spoken of as somebody which has missed the bus, missed the China bus on things like manufacturing, etc. And... Um, um, you know, have not been able to take advantage of that. But climate technology, and we'll come to the second part of your discussion, uh, is, a, is an opportunity for us to also leapfrog and take technology leadership and create green new jobs uh, of the kind that we were not able to do over the last 30 or 40 years. So both because it's, an, it's, a, it's a unique threat for us and because it's a, it's a massive opportunity for us uh, is the reason we should uh, take this uh, topic seriously and work on all fronts to raise uh, climate finance uh, to uh, to to uh, chart our way forward. We're happy to go into what that strategy might look like. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think I agree with you on the on the thread piece as well as the opportunity piece. In fact, uh, you know the paper I had written, which you you kindly mentioned, uh, for Carnegie. Um, called India's, uh, you know, comprehensive framework for India's climate finance strategy. In that, I lay out, you know, four pieces that I'd love to get into with you as well, which all are making underlying the same argument, right? So the underlying argument is that this is an opportunity for India. We've missed not just the China bus. In fact, as I've argued in my book, The Great Tech Game, we've missed several great games in the past, right? Uh, the China piece is a more recent story of the last 20, 30 years, but Really, we missed the industrialization board. We missed, you know, a global trade great game. We've missed, I would say, even the great capitalism game of the last fifty to hundred years. We've missed the the bus, so to say, on on on, on various occasions in the past. And as this imperative, uh, the climate imperative, reshapes the global economy, reshapes the way it's structured, reshapes the energy that's powering the economy, but also the kind of companies that will now emerge, we'll see almost like the digital economy, a new climate economy emerge. And for India to win at this, we cannot continue to just rely, as I think you also say, on waiting for the finance to come through. We've got to figure out our own way forward because at no point in the great games of the past also, the winner has never, at least intentionally, 
helped the loser of that game, right? To come up in the next game. So if we think of climate, the climate economy as a new great game that's emerging, uh, I would personally have very little faith in the winners of the existing game of the industrial economy to help uh, the emerging economies to possibly become winners in the in the new great climate game, right? Uh, and hence that strategy of self-reliance of figuring out our own way, uh, I think becomes very important. And I've laid out four pillars, right? One is that I think this cannot be done without the private sector. The private sector must be at the helm of the climate finance problem uh, because governments have various imperatives, obviously from a political standpoint, domestically as well as otherwise. But the private sector, where it smells opportunity, will will open up its purse strings. Second is that of international institutions and partnerships, whether it's with multilateral institutions or MDBs, etc., or bilateral partnerships with other countries or even particular private sector firms. There's obviously something we've discussed in the past at the Global Tech Summit that Carnegie hosted, which was the blend of instruments that we need to use to finance this journey, which is blended finance and various other innovative instruments that we'll have to come to think of so we can reduce the cost of this finance that we need. And then finally, the financing of the climate tech innovation journey, right? Without R&D, without innovation, India is not going to win or, uh, you know, at least be amongst the leading nations of the new climate economy. So let me go through those four very briefly with you. So on the private sector side, how do you think India can best leverage the private sector again globally now to finance this climate transition journey, what's what what's needed? In a couple of minutes, let's talk about what do we need to change to to make India more attractive for global private sector capital. Yeah, so I think I really liked your framing in your in your paper because I think it covers on all the important elements that need to come right, and I think it also emphasizes the point that there is no silver bullet here, right? There's no one trick that we can rely on. There's no one pool of capital we can rely on. To solve this problem, it is an existential problem that touches every uh, every aspect of our life, and it is also a problem that uh, that needs us to tap every type of capital, right? Uh, and I think maybe just before going to the into the private sector piece, which I think is super important for scaling, uh, the way I've sort also been looking at it, Anirudh, is what are the different pools of capital and what can they do in this in this journey, right? So, you know, let's start with the government. Uh, of course, uh, as you said, government capital is not sufficient in its own, but it is very important capital for climate change. I think it's like it lays the foundational bricks uh, for, for things like R&D, uh, which uh, the private investor will not invest in, for things like adaptation and just transition, which again is something not really amenable in many cases, things like city action plans, transitioning out of coal, what happens to livelihoods, those kind of things, right? As well as um, uh, what I what I would like to call market-making capital, right? And uh, sending the right signal to, so for example, India's National in, uh, Infrastructure Investment Fund, which has a large allocation for green finance, which is partly held by the government of India and partly by uh, sovereign wealth funds and long-term investors, Right. So that kind of a, a fund is something the government comes in strategically uh, to sort of send the message that we are serious about this and we co-invest together. So there is an important role for government capital uh, to start out, right? Uh, then I think your point on the 
uh, in your partnerships piece, right? There's a massive, massive role for multilateral development banks and development finance institutions. And there, the one line summary I see for their role is to say they are the north-south or the public-private finance highway because they're in a very unique position. They have deep trust with governments in the global south. They have uh, boots on the ground. They have teams working in all these countries for the last 50, 60 years. And they have trust of the global financial markets, right? They're able to borrow from global financial markets because they are sovereign guaranteed at uh, near sovereign rates. Uh, and so this is a unique combination. And, you know, you mentioned blended capital. I think that's where they become super important. And we can go, go into that uh, a little bit more. So that's the second piece. The third pool of capital is what I call patient capital. And this comes in various forms. Um, many people call it impact capital um, and, and uh, many other things. But their role really is what I say, making moonshots a reality. Uh, so, you know, they have higher risk appetite. They have longer time horizons than typical private capital. Um, so, you know, like the Breakthrough Energy Ventures, the, which was funded by, initially funded by Bill Gates, and then he managed to crowd in uh, more than a billion dollars. You know, they define their problem statement very, very nicely. They say, we are looking for solutions that if they scale, can solve 1% of the uh, decarbonization problem. We are willing to have a 12 to 15 year horizon, not the four to eight year horizon that venture capitalist firms typically have. And we have a high tolerance for failure. And because of that, they have funded more than 70 uh, early stage companies who are doing everything from, you know, removing methane emission from cows using vaccinations uh, to sort of thinking about carbon uh, storage through natural mineralization, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a massive role then for patient capital of the kind that I just described. And then lastly, I would say um, pure commercial capital uh, that you mentioned, just because, you know, the scale of money, we, remember, we need to go up 5x from where we are today. That's not going to happen unless private commercial capital comes to the party in a big way uh, across sectors. And really, the secret sauce for this is one in sectors where things have already proven out. Let's say wind and solar, those are the most uh, pertinent examples. There, we just have to focus on ease of doing business and making it easy uh, to, to deploy projects. But in everything else, we need a blended capital approaches to get large-scale private capital uh, to, uh, to, to make sense. So we need this entire uh, continuum, Anirudh, and I missed out one because I spent a lot of time in philanthropic capital, which I think also is super important because it can go where others fear to tread. Uh, you know, it can take a systems change view of things. It can take an ultra long-term view of things. And the way I see it, good philanthropic capital is more nimble than government money and more patient than commercial money. So it brings the best of private capital and, and uh, public capital. And so things like supporting foundational research, Carnegie Endowment's uh, climate program, for example, uh, would be a great use of philanthropic capital, probably already is. Uh, supporting lighthouse initiatives, which can show the way, create confidence amongst market participants, you know. Uh, I recently was at an event hosted by the World Resources Institute, WRI, on doing carbon market simulations for India, where a number of industry participants from across sectors had shown up. And that was funded by philanthropic capital, giving confidence to large companies in India to play in the carbon market and not feeling shy and opposing it as a result of that lighthouse initiative, right? Also things like ecosystem building. Uh, you know, we have the India Climate Collaborative, which has come together in India using philanthropic money, which is trying to build a broader ecosystem of action. And lastly, consumer behavior changes. What can we do with nudges 
and um, those kind of things. So those are the kind of things philanthropical capital can fund. So Anirudh uh, gave a long answer to your short question, but I think the way to see this is we need every kind of capital. What's the best use of different kinds of capital, whether it's government, MDB or uh, DFI capital, patient capital, commercial, and lastly, philanthropic capital. And then the question is, how do you bring these together and blend these to create uh, what we need for the future? No, absolutely. I think that broadly, that's absolutely right. I agree with you that different pools of capital exist. Different pools of capital will serve different purposes. We'll have different time and risk horizons. And as a, as a result, we'll be better matched with specific kinds of opportunities. Some better for moonshots, some better for scaling, some better for R&D, etc. But I think the question then is, okay, so what proportion can we, right? So if you want to move forward now from this, and this is one of my favorite questions, which I often don't get an answer to from uh, most people, uh, both in the field of climate finance and outside, is if you were to today, and I'm going to ask you this almost as a lightning round question, give me the split of the, uh, of let's say we wanted $100 from these broadly three or four pools of capital. What is the proportion you expect needs to come from the private sector? How much from the government? How much from philanthropic? And how much from, let's say, impact capital? Yeah, yeah. I can give you a one-minute answer or I can give you a three-month answer. But, um, you know, I think a, lo- a lot depends on the time frame, Anirudh. So today, if you ask me, you know, uh, the uh, how should, the where should bulk of the money come? I think it will be over-indexing on government and MDB and DFI capital. Uh, and I think increasingly we'll see much more coming from patient capital, venture capital, NPE, and then eventually pure commercial, large, large commercial capital, right? Uh, so let's just to answer your question more directly, let's say scenario 2023 and scenario 2033. Today, I would say, uh, you know, private capital uh, is uh, maybe 75% of the 600 billion that I, that I mentioned to you, right? Um, but the problem is we we need to take the 600 billion to 3 3 trillion right and we probably need to keep that 75% at 75% of 3 trillion and so i think all of these will need to uh, need to rise in um, massive proportions i don't expect the percentages to change dramatically but i think we need to have this 5x increase across all of these um, pools of capital yeah, so my worry is that, you know, we are really talking a lot more about government capital, which will, you know, more likely than not form a much, much smaller chunk, right? Uh, I think 80%, 70 or 80%, I think, as you're also indicating, will have to come from the private sector. And, you know, to that extent, let me ask you another question. So, you know, the spring meetings of the uh, World Bank, etc. just happened. I, um, our finance minister was there. Um, of the conversations, she recently also asked the Asian Development Bank to come up with ways to give cheaper finance to climate projects in India. Uh, the same conversation is obviously happening at the World Bank level as well. Um, are you one hopeful of the fact that now uh, a person like Ajay Banga is at the helm of the World Bank? If you look at the circumstances, the statements, the conversations around his appointment, or his nomination and then his uh, election as, as as president of the World Bank, you'll see that climate has been a big part of the statements coming from President Biden and several others, 
And of course, the other piece that's in there is the reason why President Biden has nominated him uh, is that he he comes from the private sector. He doesn't come from a traditional World Bank or a you know development finance organization. He comes from the private sector. And hopefully he can mobilize that private sector capital that I've also emphasized in my framework. But I think from the numbers, as, as we were just discussing, also is important. So are you hopeful that someone like him can now deliver on the promise that the World Bank and other MDBs can be used to leverage that $10 of private capital on the back of that $1 of government capital? The argument that you were also making that needs to happen? Yeah. So I think, first of all, I think Mr. Banga's selection is an inspired choice for the reasons that you said. I think he has a wealth of experience, both in the global south and the global north, in the private sector, in uh, the public sector, in financial markets, in, in other industries, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's great. Uh, I, however, feel that, um, you know, it's there is no silver bullet in these things. And I think the choice of uh, a great leader for these organizations is a necessary but not sufficient condition for the kind of change that we need, right? I think, um, to be very candid, I think these organizations require massive reform. Uh, I think all of them have been talking a lot about climate change, but the talk is well ahead of the walk. Uh, and I don't blame these organizations entirely, right? They, they are creatures of the Bretton Woods period, which was uh, 75 years ago. Uh, they are. Uh, they have a certain culture and way of doing work, but they also have a governance that is, I think, hindering their reforms. So you have the large countries of the world, which have geopolitical issues and other dimensions uh, that that tends to show up when you have conversations on the MDB reform, right? So you have China and US are the biggest shareholders of the World Bank. And when you are, um, you know, arguing on so many other platforms, it's unlikely you're going to agree on the massive reforms that the MDBs require. So, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I think then the what of what kind of reforms are needed, I think that has now been well studied, well documented. There's a G20 task force report on this, whether it's improving, increasing, basically increasing capital or, or allowing their capital to leverage uh, a lot more capital on their books uh, and various other reforms around their operations. All of these things are well documented. It's about now getting it done. But Anirudh, I keep coming back to this point of we don't have the luxury of time, right? And we know there is a ticking time bomb that we are facing. If we want to meet our net zero by 2050 or 1.5 degree or even two degree goal, And so we need to work on MDB reform, but again, we can't only rely on MDB reform. And I think in this context, one of the ideas that, you know, I've been sort of thinking a lot about it is whether there is a need for a new sort of a climate world bank, right? For want of a better word, which is fundamentally different from the existing world bank and the Asian development banks of the world uh, with a charter, which is exclusively focused on leverage instruments, Right, such as uh, which will enable blended finance. So things like first loss guarantees, mezzanine capital, project insurance, climate insurance, and technical assistance. All of these things are being talked about as the unlocks for blended finance, for catalytic finance. But um, asking the MDBs to do this as a new business line uh, or an additional piece of work is going to take time. So could we come up with something like a new World Bank that can be capitalized by the governments of the world 
and in addition to the capital from these countries by the SDRs of the IMF, the special drawing rights of the IMF, uh, which can uh, also be leveraged to get a lot more capital on their back. And this is not my idea, Anirudh, so I won't claim credit for it. This is an idea which has been put forward by something called the Bridgetown Initiative, which again came from the Prime Minister of Barbados, um, Mia Motley. I think there's time to think about leveraging um, the SDR capital uh, in potentially a new institution that from day one is born as a leverage uh, leverage uh, institution and can allow much more um, pools of private capital on the back of their capital to be deployed for projects, especially in the global south. I think that's the kind of, while we continue to work on MDB reform, we do need to work on some of these radical innovative ideas to unlock the kind of climate finance we're talking about. We need. No, that's right. I think that, you know, while MDB reform will suffer possibly as, as I think you were alluding to because of the geopolitical conflicts that we're currently um, part of, um, you know, in the world, um, unfortunately, I think it will also possibly slow down the development of any truly world, truly global climate bank as well. Right. Uh, so I think the, the problem that uh, geopolitics might uh, might um, present for for existing MDBs or existing institutional frameworks to be reformed or for progress to happen even within COPs and other platforms, I think might, might uh, plague any new institution that also gets set up, uh, unfortunately. But, but let's talk about climate technology also now, right? So you've spoken a little bit about the climate finance piece, and obviously... I think there's a lot more that we can go into depth, but for lack of uh, you know time, let, let me now move to the climate tech piece of our conversation. So if you look at India's climate tech strategy, so to say, we don't have a explicit one out there, but if you can, if you, uh, can put one together, uh, at least the way I put it together is to say that there are two or three large pieces that we are relying on. One is we are going for electrification of our mobility, right? So the EV-driven strategy to electrify our cars and our trucks and our scooters on one end. And then we have a green hydrogen mission, the National Green Hydrogen Mission, uh, for which I believe 6,000 crores have been allocated by the government, um, which is obviously a big chunk for a country like India. But if you compare it to the amounts that other countries uh, are putting behind green hydrogen, you know, might pale in comparison, but still, I think it's a substantial amount. So we have this green hydrogen strategy, which might help us with um, our hard to abate industries, possibly, if that technology story plays out. And then we have the EV story, on the other hand, which is now very quickly starting to play out. And then a small part of the story that uh, we can also mention is the biofuel story. Um, you know, India is becoming a large ethanol manufacturer. Uh, and along with the Brazil and the US at the India Energy Week in Bangalore, which I was at uh, a few months ago, India and Brazil and the US launched a global biofuels alliance. Um, you know, but that obviously is not a very big chunk, but uh, of our total requirements. But that's broadly what 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 I am seeing is the focus of India's climate tech strategy. Now, however, if you look at it from a venture capital standpoint, um, you know, the framework we use for climate technology includes various other technologies, right? So you have green buildings and technology for that. You have smart grids and technology for that. You have smarter agriculture and technology for that. Of course, you have space and analytics and data 
that has to be part of it. Uh, and then lots of moonshot technologies that, you know, various companies and institutions are working around on, on around the world. As you also mentioned, Breakthrough is funding some of them, but really there's lots of those projects going out around the world. What's your sense of the key technology areas that India needs to focus on? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, before going into what they need to focus on, I think there's a little bit of a, I think, hat tip I want to do to the fact that uh, what we have accomplished over the last decade, I think whether it is um, in the global negotiations where we move from, you know, uh, we didn't cause the problem, so don't ask us to do anything, to now I think, uh, you know, a confident deal maker. Uh, on back of our commitments, our Panchamitra and those things. Similarly, in domestic policy, I think, you know, smelling the coffee and starting out with the low carbon expert group in 2012, which I was a part of, to now the long-term low emission uh, strategy, which was released at Sharmal Sheikh, a lot has been done, right? And similarly, action on the ground, especially on things like you mentioned. Uh, firstly, just the solar story in India is quite remarkable. And unlike what has, India has accomplished in I don't. I can't think of any other space where, over a space of ten years, we have gone from really a minor dot uh, to a major global player uh, in the solar solar space, right? So I think first of all, let's recognize what we have accomplished and use that as a base for what to do in the future. And Anirudh, as a you know, as you're also an investor and you understand this well, the way I like to think about the role of government and all this is not so much to pick winners of policies but really to think about what is the market shaping or the market making role they can play at different stages of the valley of death, right? And so the value... Let me, let me clarify one thing, Varad. Let me clarify one thing. When I say India, I mean all players in India. I don't mean the Indian government alone, right? So I completely agree with you that the government only has X part to play, right, in various technology pieces, whether it's research, innovation, scaling, adoption, the money needed to scale it, and then, of course, final consumer or customer adoption. My question is really, like, if you look at it from a broader standpoint than just the Indian government, India, whether it's the private sector or philanthropic capital or, you know, innovators, recent institutions, the focus is largely, I agree with you, on renewable energy, solar, wind, green hydrogen, and then electric mobility, right? Um, yeah. So my question is really like, I agree with you also on, you know, you know, acknowledging that we have had a massive success story in solar energy, renewable energy production as a percentage of our total production. Um, we also, I think, are seeing a great adoption of EVs over the last year or two, especially. Um, green hydrogen, you know, there's some commitments to and hopefully that mission works out. But the question is, what, what might we be missing? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I mean, this is something you'll get different answers from people. I'll give you my five top candidates other than solar, wind and EV. Uh, so the first I would say steel, uh, clean steel is a big opportunity for us. We are already uh, a major exporter of steel. We are seeing the global trend on movement towards green steel. Europe putting the uh, on the um, the new border adjustment mechanism in place. So we, we, we it's both a necessity and an opportunity, right? So that's that's one. The second I would say is uh, long duration energy storage, because if we want to go beyond EVs and um, if we really want solar uh, and wind to be part of large grid scale solutions, we need to we need to figure out long duration energy storage if we want to wean ourselves out of coal. Otherwise, it's not happening. Right. So that's the second. The third is, I would say, in a similar vein, uh, the smart grid uh, piece and really rethinking 
what we mean by a modern grid. This is a problem not unique to us, but every even US is right now struggling with this question. Uh, but basically, the point is we can keep ramping up solar and wind production, but unless we figure out both long duration storage and the grid, this will not become a major part of the energy mix and we will not be able to wean ourselves outside coal. So that's the third. The fourth, I would say, is nuclear, a bit controversial, but I think uh, modular, uh, small scale modular reactors, I think there's a lot of hope resting on that. I think um, this is an opportunity for us. Uh, we have kept nuclear, of course, for strategic reasons, owned exclusively in the public sector. I think as uh, Monte Kaluwali and others have recently argued, it is time for us to think about maybe a joint venture approach to advancing nuclear to be part of our um, energy mix. If you want to get nuclear up to 10% of our energy mix by 2035, we need to scale up uh, nuclear by 10x. It's not a small means and uh, and we need to be innovative on that space. And the last for me is uh, regenerative agriculture uh, uh, because I think there's an opportunity here to both uh, transform the way we do agriculture for this uh, and move away from the highly intensive green revolution uh, agriculture that we've been doing for the last 40, 50 years, which has now begun to plateau and actually diminish in its returns. At the same time, create large scale carbon uh, uh, sequestration potential and monetize it using the carbon markets. So, you know, the uh, clean steel, long energy duration storage, um, re a revamped grid, uh, small modular nuclear and regenerative agriculture would be my top five picks. Oh, great. I think th those are five uh, great options for, for I think, um, everyone to think about, from entrepreneurs to policymakers to, to people in the space broadly. I'll add one more, right? Um, at least one more. There are many that could come to mind, but I guess in, in, in priority setting, I think there's the energy efficiency piece here that often gets missed, right? Um, so in fact, just today I was reading in the Economic Times, Alok Kumar, who's the secretary in the power ministry, he, he has a piece in there that uh, talks about the three main priorities from his standpoint. And he mentions obviously the hard to evade sectors, steel we've discussed, but there's others cement, etc. There's the EV story and the mobility story that's playing out, of course, currently only on the commercial passenger side, but really needs to be extended to the railways and freight and, you know, many other pieces of the transportation puzzle. And then uh, the third piece that he mentions, which according to him is a big chunk that also gets missed, and I can really agree with him, is managing the consumption aspect of this, right? How do we actually reduce the consumption of energy as well. How do we get smarter homes? How do we get greener buildings? How do we get people to be much smarter about their energy choices? Goes to the, you know, the life mission that, of course, Prime Minister Modi has also spoken about. How do we reduce the demand of energy in the first place? I think it's the sixth piece I would add to maybe the five you've you've very nicely laid out. Let me uh, let me move to just the last piece that I think I'd like to cover before we wrap up our conversation today, Varal, is, you know, like any other country, I think we've got to learn from the journeys of other countries as well. If we want to move as fast as we can on, on, on this climate uh, transition, any lessons that you've seen um, in terms of either climate finance strategies or climate tech, either innovation or climate tech adoption, uh, from other countries that you've seen that you'd like to highlight where India could learn from that and say, hey, listen, this is an interesting strategy that this X country has adopted. 
maybe this is something we can pick up on and uh, and build and scale upon. Yeah. So I think the good, uh, you can call it the bad news or the good news, Anirudh, is that I think this is such a nascent space that there are no uh, templates to copy uh, just yet, right? And I think that's what also makes this exciting and part of the reason that I'm going back deeper into what I ca- what I would call the problem-solving engine room of the climate finance and climate tech problem in my new role is because I think there are no ready answers that you can transplant. That said, I think uh, it's interesting to see the paths that different countries or regions have taken. I think the EU, of course, has been a trailblazer on um, both um, you know, domestic actions and regulation as a lever for action, right? So they were the original folks who did the energy trading scheme in, back in the earlier, under the Kyoto Protocol, uh, they are also the most advanced in terms of regulations on their own businesses. And now through their, through their buying power and through the, uh, through the border adjustment mechanisms on other countries in the world. So the EU has chosen a regulation-led path. In contrast, I think US, which typically, you know, generally is a little more averse to too much regulation, has chosen a more, what you can call an incentive path. So the entire Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation and everything to do with climate change, is really a large incentive program to get actors both on the investment side and the consumption side to change their behaviors, right? To your point in the in your in the previous question. So they have chosen a more incentive-based path uh, as the lead strategy. Uh, and so we have to also, I think, choose a mix of these things. We don't have unlimited resources uh, and even the level of resources that the US has. So ours cannot be a, a subsidy heavy or an incentive only strategy. We need to choose uh, a combination of these levers. I think the general lessons, Anirudh, are quite clear in my mind, right? One is this, we need a whole of whole of government, whole of society approach here because climate change is not a sector or a domain. It is something that cuts across everything we do. That has implications for what kind of institutional mechanisms we need as a country. Uh, Navroz Dubash and others have called upon setting up a low carbon national commission, which I think is a great idea because it could bring together both the government, civil society, industry, everything together and be the apex body to sort of guide and direct, non-executive apex body to guide and direct a lot of action. I think we need to tap on every door of finance like we discussed. There's a role for all those pools of capital and all of them need to scale up dramatically. And we need to invest in institutions for a sustainable future. We need a lot more uh, climate schools. I sit on this advisory board of something called the Ananta School of uh, Sustainability at the Ananta National University in Ahmedabad, which is India's first full-time program on climate uh, in India. We need several more of those. Uh, And we need to really understand the opportunity framing that we talked about here. And, uh, and, you know, grab it, grab it with both our hands uh, because it is one of those remarkable moments in history, which is both a threat and a massive opportunity. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. I think I'll add a couple of uh, lessons that I see that India can draw from other countries, right? One is, I think, uh, from the US, uh, besides obviously the IRA, which again, I wrote about and I said that India might want uh, to also have a comprehensive climate legislation that we might want to bring about at some point. Though right now, obviously, we're doing it in, you know, pieces, which sometimes is easier to pass. You know, the IRA, as, as anyone who followed it knows, was was a massive legislation that was extremely hard to pass and hence 
is also named something that does not, as you rightly said, it seems like it's about inflation, but it's about climate. It took a while to pass and was very hard. Um, but the other lesson I think that we can draw from the U.S. is that, and I, and I say this as, a, as someone in the technology venture capital world, is that they are going deep into the climate tech innovation base. They really are. They're spending a lot of R&D and really as IRA, I see it also as an R&D act. They're basically yeah. saying that, you know, we'll give you incentives to change your behaviors, yes, but we'll really also give you the money to do the core R&D that you need to develop the next wave of technologies in climate, right? And climate, again, broadly defined, because I think the U.S. realizes that they've missed the bus on certain technologies vis-a-vis its main geopolitical competitor today, China. Right. Uh, I think the Europeans are trying to do something similar. They're also talking about the new Green Deal. Um, and I think from what I see in the European VC world also, they're also starting to really start to think about, okay, how do we invest in innovative climate startups? Right. Um, so while there is the regulation piece, but I think there's the innovation piece that we can learn from. The second, I would say, again, drawing on certain European countries, right? Um, there are countries who have been in the clean tech when this dye space used to be called clean tech, uh, they've been clean tech powers, uh, whether it was on wind or, uh, or various other aspects of agriculture, energy production, etc. And I think we need to also figure out, okay, where in our own manufacturing or made in India strategy, does climate fit, right? And and what pieces of maybe climate man- related manufacturing, climate tech related manufacturing, we need to adopt. And third is the scale of adoption. And this is where I think we can learn from China. Um, one thing, if you look at solar, you know, it was a very interesting piece I, I, I came across a couple of weeks ago. The amount of solar that we are putting up in an entire year, 12 to 13 gigawatts, is something that China is today putting up in a quarter. They're doing 60 plus gigawatts in a year. That's 63, I think, was the number I came across. And so I think the, the lesson for me there is actually the speed of adoption. As you rightly mentioned, time is short, I think both from a risk as well as an opportunity standpoint. So I think India must also scale up its pace, not just uh, adoption, but I think pace of adoption, I think is going to be very important, whether it's EVs, whether it's rooftop solar, whether it's any other piece of the five or six priorities or technologies we discussed. um, I think the pace of adoption is going to be a real game changer for, for countries here, right? For both entrepreneurs as well as government. But great. No, this has been a great conversation. We've covered lots of pieces of climate tech, climate finance uh, here today, Varad. So thank you for your time. Um, I think that there are lots of threads here that we can go deeper on, which we'd love to, uh, I think as Carnegie India, we start to work more on climate as well. We'd love to pick up some of these these threads that we've discussed today, I think uh, at a macro level and go deeper uh, as well on. So thank you for sharing your thoughts. and. Um, Look forward to continuing to engage. Fantastic. Great to do this with you, Anirudh. And, you know, as I think the conversation uh, told us, I think we we ran out of time and I felt like we were just about getting started. So let's do this more often and uh, great to great to exchange notes. Great. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.